0: (laughs) Welcome to another edition of Ace on Music. I'm your host, Ace, and I'm joined, as always, by my cohort, Sean. Hello, everyone. So, this week, I thought we would talk about something I call musical anomalies. Now, what am I talking about? Well, I've been in this business a long time, and the reality is that there are certain patterns that all bands are supposed to follow when they're making records, when they're doing shows, like, for example... If you go see a classic rock band, you want to hear the hits that you grew up loving. If you if you are uh, living in America, which is the biggest music market, we're not very tolerant of music from other, in other languages and things along those lines. And, but once in a while, a band that breaks all of the rules succeeds in spite of that. So I thought we would talk about some of those today. And uh, I'll start by talking about... The band that kind of inspired this topic in my head. And they are a band that I first encountered in the 90s. And they're from Germany. And they're called Rammstein, which I'm sure Paul, uh, I'm sure that Sean is familiar with. Yes. And my friend Paul first turned me on to them back in uh, when I lived up in Canada still. And what was so unusual about this band is first of all, they're a really kick ass metal band. And if you've never seen them live, You're doing yourself a disservice. Seeing Rammstein live is one of the most biggest spectacles on a stage I've ever witnessed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw them at Download a few years ago, and Adam, my business partner, and I, we were wandering around backstage, and there was like 13 53-foot semi-trailers just to carry the pyrotechnics for their show. It was just insane. But the thing that makes Rammstein such an anomaly is that they have grown to such stature in the United States that when they do a tour over here, they play stadiums. We're talking 50, 60 plus thousand people a night. And not one of their songs isn't in German. I know, it's weird. You go watch some of the DVDs, like uh, uh, Rammstein in America, which I think was filmed in New York. And you see this whole crowd of Americans there rocking out and singing every lyric in German to every song. They don't know what they're saying, but they're singing it. <laughs> you, I know you're also a fan of Rammstein. What do you think uh, allows them to get away with this?
1: Well, you know, I saw them back in the 90s, I believe, the Family Values Tour. I don't know if it was the first one or second one. I don't know if you're familiar with that, with that tour, but... Mm-hmm. That was like kind of the beginning of the new metal coming in, and they would try to get on all uh get these new bands to perform and uh I stumbled upon them by accident and uh yeah, just like you said man they they didn't they weren't even that big, and they had these huge pyrotechnics going on like I didn't even know how they got away with it here and you know singing in German and stuff and it was it was awesome it was a great show, great band to see live I actually can't wait to see them they had to postpone their last two uh tour two times I think right uh, yeah
0: they were they had a show uh, scheduled here part of the tour was here in Los Angeles and they were in a, a big stadium somewhere down near Orange County mm-hmm. but thanks to our jolly little friend COVID it's been rescheduled at least twice now And yeah I believe so I don't even know if it's been I think it is back on the books for like October or something next, like that like 2023 right yeah next year yeah so uh, but I'll be there mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be a great show so, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Bands that break the rules, who who go against convention and the templates of our era and succeed despite that. So, what is an example of a band that uh, you can think of that does that?
1: Um, well, there's quite a few. I mean, I, are we talking like the Sex Pistols direction, or are we going to a different uh, well, direction? Well, I don't really like...
0: think the Sex Pistols are that, because they were, they were definitely... The best of the bunch, but punk was a movement that was going on at the time that they came out, and right. and uh, yeah, so I mean there was a lot of bands doing their kind of thing. And I don't definitely the whole punk movement mm-hmm. broke rules, right? But I don't know if specifically the Pistols would fall into
1: that. Yeah, well, what I could think of from my age and my era, the the breakthrough of desert rock metal, you know, early '90s uh, band called Karma to Burn. Carmen yeah. of Burn. Yeah. That was one on my list as well. Yeah, well, that's why I brought it up because I wanted to interact with the, why I was wondering why you put that on the list. Well,
0: I put it on my list because back in the '90s, I was I started off in this business as a music journalist, and in the '90s, especially when the labels encountered this new thing called the internet, and they were all scrambling to figure out what the heck they should do about it. They were more or less throwing as much as they could at the wall and seeing what would stick. Mm -hmm. And me being a journalist at the time, I started getting flooded with promo CDs asking me to write reviews and things like that. So I would literally get like 10 CDs a week in my post office box. And being the kind of person I am, I felt like, well, if you're going to send me the CD, the least I can do is listen to it and review it. And one day I got this CD in the mail... And it, was, it had an unusual cover. First of all, it had like a cowboy girl on the cover. And all it said was karma to burn. And I went, okay. So I put this disc on. And it was really good metal music. But no vocals mm. whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so I did some poking around and discovered that this was kind of their thing. And I know that they originally signed to Roadrunner. Mm. Uh, and Roadrunner insisted that they have a vocalist. Uh, on their first record and so they reluctantly bowed to the pressure of the label but after they decided halfway through that process that it was just not for them and so they fired the, the singer and subsequently the label fired them but other labels picked it up knowing that it was great music but the thing that was unusual for me is when I first heard it I kind of went huh that's weird and then didn't think much more about it But then I started hearing all these reviews coming in and all these people starting the buzz around this band Karma to Burn saying what an incredible band they were and they were supposedly great live. I never got to see them live. Did you ever see them live?
1: Yeah, that's why I was kind of bringing it up a little bit because like I said, I saw it on your notes and I was like, oh, excited about that because I kind of stumbled upon them by accident myself and uh, I got to see them live. Where did you see them? Like how big a venue? Oh, it was, I, I... God, it was uh, off the strip somewhere. I think it was like maybe the Roxy or uh, one of those clubs, small. It was Maybe it was a b- more obscure club. But uh, yeah, I think I went and seen a friend's band and they opened up for them. And they just, I don't know, there was something about their sound. Just that whole movement was, you know, the desert rock movement was kind of kind of faded out a little bit, but then it would start to come back in, because this must have been about, about 97, Is this, does that sound about right? Yeah, that's that's about the ballpark, yeah. Yeah, because they broke up recently, uh, they broke up right after that year, like I think they broke up in the they were only from 97 to 2002.
0: Yeah, and then, they did reform though, around, I'm going to say 2010, yeah. they did do a reunion, but I know that um, I think most of the members have passed on now or something like that, so I don't I know they also kind of merged into another band at one point. Like they went out, and I, and for the life of me, I can't remember what the other band is. But I know they went out to kind of become the touring musicians for this other band, and somehow the two morphed into one being. Mm. Anyway, go well, look it up. on Well, I page. know
1: Scott uh, Reader. He was a bass player for Caius, and he also he produced their two thousand and ten album, I believe, and uh, he uh, he was involved in. Uh, auditioning for a lot of great bands like he even tried uh, for Metallica and I think he was up for being the bass player for Metallica but uh, Trujillo got the job. Uh, you know that
0: Adam and I actually worked with, with Scott for a while? Oh really? Yeah we. Uh, he was playing in a band called uh, Attica 7. Yeah yeah so uh, right. that was one that we were taking care of but Adam had a long history with the uh, desert rock people with used to work with uh queens of the stone age and things like that yeah
1: well he did i believe i believe he was before they recorded the first album he was their bass player on their on their getting together with that band oh really yeah because when i seen him at the troubadour he was uh, he was the bass player so i believe it was before their new album or they had an ep out at the time but yeah awesome bass player man he uh he's a great great bass
0: player well, that kind of launches me. You mentioned the desert rock scene, and for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, is uh, there's an area here in Southern California, just outside of L.A., a couple of hours' drive away, near a place called Desert Palm Springs, which was the, the epicenter of a whole movement of music that's referred to as the desert rock movement. A lot of very interesting bands came out of that. Caius, Queens of the Stone Age, probably the biggest one that came out of that era. Mm-hmm. Mondo Generator and some other ones, but there there was one project that would come that came out of that that I always found fascinating. The idea was fascinating. Now Josh Homme, who is the the main guy in Queens of the Stone Age, he would invite what about? I guess it was approximately once a year. It was no schedule involved, but. Every once in a blue moon, he would get a bunch of his rock and roll friends to come out to this place they have out there in that area in the desert. And in this, in this house was a recording studio. And what they would basically do is everybody would get there and they'd hang out and have a few beers and whatever else they wanted to indulge in. And these, all these creative people would get together and then if they came up with some musical idea, they could just march themselves into the studio and record it on the spot. And at the end of all this, he would always Scott or uh, Josh would always compile these and release them as these uh, as these collections of songs. I think there's seven or eight of them or something like that. I don't know if he still does it or not because I haven't heard about it in a number of years. Are you, ta- are you talking about the Desert Sessions? Yes, the okay. Desert Session desert, records. Yes. And there's some really fascinating stuff that comes out of that when yeah. there's so little, uh, you know. BS, for lack of a better term, between the creation and and the recording of a a piece of music like that. And in fact, one of my favorite, favorite Queens of the Stone Age records came out of one of those desert sessions. Uh, In fact, uh, when Lullabies to Paralyze, the Queens of the Stone Age album, came out, I was in England at the time, and I was actually about to fly home. I was in Heathrow Airport, and this is back when we still had record stores, and they had a little... Uh, HMV or something like that in Heathrow Airport and I was managing Nick Oliveri who used to be bass player in the band at the time and I mentioned to him this track uh, Like a Drug and he went, oh I remember that song, that came from one of the desert sessions we did out there so um, and apparently that song does not appear on the North American release of the album because I asked several of my friends what they thought of that song and they all looked at me like I was a Martian but uh, If you ever get the chance, it's probably on Spotify somewhere or something, but listen to it. Like a Drug from Queens of the Stone Age, amazing, amazing
1: example of what I'm talking about there. Yeah, uh, didn't Dave Groh, he was on one of their albums, and I think he wanted to join the band, but... For some reason, uh, something happened or he couldn't do it or something. Yeah, he
0: played on the uh, Songs for the Deaf album, yeah. which was like the album for Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. And, he w- and from all the reports I've had from people in that campus, he really wanted to join the band. But his management said, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you are you got this other yes, stuff going on. So, <laughs> so um, just... Trailing off of the Rammstein thing, there's another another artist that came from Germany, a one-hit wonder. I'm sure she's had some other hits in her native country and things like that, but she was also from Germany. And I think most people probably remember the singer Nina from Germany. She did this song called uh, 99 Luft, or Red Balloons, or it was 9 Balloons in Luftballoons uh, in German. And it was a big hit over here. I'm sure everybody knows it. Uh, she's come under a lot of fire as of recently because she's a big-time anti-vaxxer and all this sort of thing. But uh, again, an artist who... That song was a little bit different because they released it in both forms because the label was scared to death about putting out a song in German. But So they released the German version and the English version. You can hear... Depends on what radio station you listen to, you'll hear one or the other. But uh, there's another example of what I'm talking about. Going in a different direction, though is a band that breaks so many of the, the hard, tr- tried and true rules of classic rock, and I don't know how they get away with it, but they break these rules and their fans just take it in stride and it makes them bigger than they ever were. And that's Iron Maiden. Here's a band that had its first big success in the 80s, was one of the f- bands at the forefront of the new wave of British heavy metal had a ton of platinum records then, has just a score of big, big hits that they had back then. And normally when you have a band like that, and, and even to this day they play arena-sized venues, usually when you have a band like that, the fans are going to hear you know the rickety old 20 big songs they had and it's what they want to hear. And when the new song off the new record gets played, that's the time to go use the restroom or grab a <laughs> beer or whatever. But Iron Maiden refuses to follow that. I remember one tour that I worked with them where they put out this new record, which, albeit had good, re- re, uh, good reaction from the critics and from the fans and everything, they went on tour and they insisted on playing the entire record from beginning to end. All new material for the whole show. And at the encore, I think they did three or four of their big hits. But basically, you played the whole record. Now, Usually that would be death. If you did that uh, with most bands, that would just be the end of, of that tour, and you would you know nobody would buy tickets, and that right, would be that. Right. Iron Maiden, <clears throat> they said, screw that, we're gonna we're all about our new music, we're all about what we're doing now, and get on board or get the hell out of
1: the way. Yeah, so, I think I think that attitude almost cost them their <laughs> their credibility at one point because I know that. In the 90s, they were kind of doing that a lot, and people wanted to hear the old stuff, and it was a time when Bruce left the band, and, uh, yeah, they weren't I mean, they weren't selling as much as they were, but, you know, the resurgence came back, and they're coming out with great albums, and Bruce is back, and... But the, you know. the fans seemed to embrace it. Yeah. You know, the fans
0: went along with it, yeah. and they said, okay, if this is what you're going to do, then fine and dandy. Yeah, so... They have a new record out now, and uh, from all reports, they're about to do a a North American tour soon. And from what I hear, they're going to be playing a great deal of this material uh, as part of their new live set. So, hey, the fans seem to get into it. Power to them. Right, yeah, it's going to be great.
1: So who's another one on your list? Well, I'd like to talk about our friends from the East. uh, Japanese band Loudness. (laughs) (laughs) Loudness. (laughs) Now, when I... First, heard them, uh, you know, I wasn't too into their music, but they were only, they, uh, they evolved in 1980 and they uh, were in Japan from 1980 to 84. And then in 85, uh, Twisted Sisters co manager signed uh, on their first international record deal. And then they had the, the one hit. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the one hit, right? <laughs> uh, crazy nights, <laughs> crazy nights. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. I just, you know, that that was huge, big deal back then, and, and they're still. T- I believe they still together, and they still play, and there's still people go and see them still. Yeah. Yeah. Here. In yeah. A
0: Japanese band making it in heavy metal of no, of no less. I mean, that's just
1: back then, especially it was a tremendous anomaly. Right. And who's the band? It just. I can't even think of the name right now. The band that played at the forum that I was really surprised—that Japanese, that young metal band, baby metal, baby metal.
0: That's another one I can't figure out. I yeah. mean, the like three young girls, right?
1: I three young girls and a, a badass team of musicians. <laughs> yeah.
0: So and they and they playing the forum. I mean, we're talking about a venue that you know seats twenty odd thousand, something like that. Yeah, so. they're huge in Japan. Um, I think Gene Simmons had something to do with the early days of loudness, too, whether he he pushed them on a label or... I I remember him talking a lot in the press about it being a band that he was very excited about at the time, so...
1: Yeah, well, I know they were the first Japanese heavy metal band in history. There you go. He signed here in America.
0: So another one I want to bring up, which is... I'm going to call it as part of this conversation, even though he's one of the biggest recording artists in American history, and that's Meatloaf. And the reason I'm going to bring it up is the pure style of music. Now, normally, when you have an artist who is successful in what is kind of a new genre of music, there's a flood of copycats that come afterwards trying to capitalize on, on this new movement, for lack of a better term. And when Meatloaf came out with "Bad Out of Hell," you know him and Jim Steinman had basically taken Broadway-style show tunes and they had made them into rock and roll with the help of Ted Todd, or Todd Rundgren. And this was a very different style of music that we hadn't really heard before, but it really seemed to resonate with the world at the time. And you had a massively successful album, "Bad Out of Hell. I mean, I think that thing's in the 25-plus million sold category over there. And I remember when I first heard Meatloaf, I didn't quite know what to make of it. I, I remember for the first little while, I'm mm, not really sure that this is for me. I don't know what's happening here. And, but it, it it was just so damn good that it just ground you down. And you just, as you heard it, because it was so pervasive on the radio, you heard it all the time. And you, know, you, you just kept hearing those songs over and over and over and you started going, Man, that's good. You know, that's kind of catchy. That's a great track. This one, And, of course, the musicianship on it was exceptional and everything. So you have all kinds of reasons why Meatloaf was successful. But, again, an anomaly, a hugely successful anomaly, but he made it because uh, they embraced this entirely new style that they more or less invented. And, you know, the
1: rest is history. Mm-hmm. Oops, is there any more on your list? Um... Yeah, there's quite a few. I don't know what kind of direction you want to go, but I was thinking, you know, like, bands like, well, let's say Def Leppard, for instance, when Rick Allen lost his arm, it's like, we thought they were done, right? And then they ended up coming up, waiting for him and coming out with their biggest album ever, you know, uh, you know, it's just going down that path, you know, bands, uh, you know, Sammy Hagar joining Van Halen and, you know,
0: well, yeah, okay, I'll give you that one. I mean, um, Sammy Hagar. That that's a that's an interesting example that I guess could kind of fit into this category. Here you have a band who with David Lee Roth had some of the most successful and important records that came out of the 70s and the 80s. And then at the what is arguably the height of their fame, the lead singer decides to leave and go off on his own and do solo records. Mm-hmm. And the band finds a replacement in Sammy Hagar who had played with Montrose and had had some minor success with his solo material like the I Can't Drive 55 song and things like that. And then they went on to have a bigger success with Sammy Hagar than they ever had with David Lee Roth. So, And that usually doesn't happen. Usually when that chemistry of losing the lead singer from a band that has struck it big once he leaves or she leaves, it's very difficult for the band to capture that success again. But yeah, you're right. I guess Van Halen is an anomaly that, that did that.
1: Yeah, well, unless you're a band
0: like Black Sabbath. <laughs> well, yeah, we can argue that one. I mean, Sabbath had, he's of course talking when Ozzy left and, and Ronnie James Dio took
1: over. I'll talk about with Ian Gillen. <laughs> no, well, they never really had any <laughs> no
0: success with Ian well, Gillen. That's Let's a, be safe. That's, okay? a,
1: that's a great album.
0: Well, regardless, it, it didn't do anywhere near what, what uh, they did with Ozzy, though. Oh, yeah, of course. But um, the last one that's on my list, and I'm not even sure I'm going to put it here, but I, why I put it here, but I thought it was worthy of a discussion, and that is Ray Charles. Easily one of the most iconic singers of all time. And the reason I added him to my list is the style of music that he did. That most people don't really realize what a rebel he was. Back in the 50s, when he was trying to find his sound, as it were, he, I mean, at that time, he was, uh, his record label was getting very frustrated with him because he was, they had signed this incredible performer, but he was very good at mimicking other people's style, You know, whether he'd, he'd do a song and it would be kind of like Nat King Cole, or he'd do another song and it was like one of the other big stars of the day. But he, ha- he was having trouble finding his own way and his own sound and his own style. And then uh, he grew up in the southern states and where, you know, it was very religious communities and church and, and that sort of thing is a big part of your life. And he decided to basically take gospel songs and play them a little bit different. And he got a lot of, of kickback back in that day saying that that was blasphemous, that he was taking the Lord's music and making something lascivious out of it, but it really led the way to him creating a whole genre of music and an extraordinarily successful career. So it's not often you see these rebels go out there and and make it on their own and make a big, big splash, but I'm going to add Ray Charles to this list only because before him, nobody was doing that. And even though there were many people who mimicked his style afterwards, he constantly would innovate and made some of the most classic songs of our era. So, was there anybody else on your list? Um, Adam Ant.
1: Adam Ant.
0: <laughs> okay, what's your reasoning behind Adam Ant?
1: Well, just, uh, you know, that sound that was being generated by that, I mean, th- that he was generating at the time was nothing like anyone ever heard. It was kind of like tribalish punk rock, new wave, and... Uh, you know, and still to this day, he goes out and plays, and people go and flock and to see him. You know, I don't know if he tour. He doesn't tour too much, but yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, he's a great artist. Good band to go see.
0: I love some of his songs. I'll <laughs> tell you that much. I've heard many stories about touring with Adam Ant. our uh, one of the tour managers that works with one of our acts used to tour manage Adam, and uh, has told me many many stories (laughs) (laughs) in any case so there you have it uh some musical anomalies as it were we'd love to hear from you and hear some bands that you think should be added to our list you can email us at acetalksmusic at gmail.com or just leave comments down below in the app wherever you're listening to or watching this podcast Uh, also we do another related show to this one called Ace on Music After Hours which is done through the Patreon.com platform where we tell road stories and things like that and you can come check that out we'd love to to see you over there and uh, the people who are Patreon supporters thank you so much your support helps make the show happen and uh, we really appreciate everything you do for us and um, as I said feedback, just not on this episode, but on any episode we want to hear from you. So until next time, I know people are starting to go back to shows and everything. Stay safe. We're still in an era of a pandemic, but go out there and enjoy yourself, but just take care of yourself. So until next week, see you later.